Hi, everybody. This is Christy here to let you know that today's episode of Ed Curation is sponsored by Figure Math. We love Figure Math, and here's why. Decades of research confirm what we all know experientially, which is that students learn best when they are actively engaged. Figure is the number one active learning tool for math. Figure Math provides expanded, inbuilt content covering the entire secondary core math curriculum with a unique drag-and-drop interface for exploring equations. You'll have an updated dashboard to enroll students and teachers in less than five minutes. The research and development of Figure Math is supported by the National Science Foundation, and they are the recipient of the Pearson Learning Award. You can find Figure Math at edcuration.com. Check it out. The most valuable resource any teacher has is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. You're listening to Ed Curation, the podcast where teachers talk curriculum. We make it easier for educators to find the resources they need to create fresh, lively, and authentic learning. In preparation for introducing our host today, I want to tell you a little about my own background. I was originally certified in Colorado as a K-6 classroom teacher, but many years later while teaching at a K-12 charter school, I got qualified as a secondary humanities teacher, and I ended up teaching middle school and high school English, speech, theater, great books, all the ELA and humanities subjects, because I'm a writer and a book nerd. Like most English teachers, I was always searching for ways to engage students more deeply with the texts I love. A few years into my secondary career, I attended a workshop, and while I admit I am prone to hyperbole, I'm not using it here when I say that the experience really and truly changed my life and my whole approach to ELA instruction. I realized that I was spending a lot of time, first of all, dominating the airwaves in my room with my own voice, and second, that I was spending a lot of time answering questions that no one was asking. The workshop I attended was about inquiry-based pedagogy, and it changed just about everything in my classroom, for which I'm confident my students were grateful because learning became so much more interesting, fun, engaging, and just more worthwhile. My guest today Andrew Roberts has a similar story, except that he is a math guy. Following his multiple decades as a secondary math teacher, he became a consultant and a trainer, working with districts all around the country, helping them to revise their math programs and pedagogy around inquiry. And we had such a great conversation, which I'm eager to share. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Andrew, tell us where you teach, what you teach, and to whom. And I know you said to me a minute ago that you're semi-retired, but kind of give us a little bit of your teaching background. Sure. I started teaching in, boy, I think it was 1989, which makes me sound, I guess, officially as old as I actually am. I was always a, a math teacher, mostly international baccalaureate math courses and just math, basically, at all levels. Why did you choose education as a career and why math? So those two things, where did those two loves come from? This is not going to be the answer you want. <laughs> uh, 
I kind of had a year of, you know, one career ended and I was thinking about what to do next. And a friend of mine recommended that I just try substitute teaching as a thing to, to do for a while. The first time I was in a classroom, it was like getting hit in the head with a sack of rocks. And I just felt like this is what I do. Oh my gosh, this is what I do. And it was, it was a moment, you know? Okay. So wait, because you said getting hit in the head with a sack of rocks, which is not a good image. Yeah. I mean that in the sense that it was just jarring. It was a mentally jarring experience. I had never had an experience up until that point in any sort of professional way where I just thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is like resonating in my head. This is is what I do. And there was kind of no turning back after that. The math thing just was, was opportunistic. I just really loved it. It it just worked Mm -hmm. for me. And that's where I decided to, to make my focus. Got it. Okay. So math was always your jam, but at some point you encountered a pedagogical shift, I think, or maybe it was that way from the beginning, because today you're excited to talk to our audience about inquiry-based math. Was that a shift for you when you first encountered that pedagogy? If I'm being honest, which I guess I should be, I was never as fully engaged an inquiry-based instructor as I could have been in mathematics. It's just what I discovered in the professional development world as a coach and a trainer of math teachers across the country. I never had the training. No one ever invested in me Mm. in a way that allowed me to exploit that. I was much more of a direct instruction type of teacher. I was very reflective of the teacher, the thousands of teachers that I've worked with across the country in training and coaching, teachers really struggling to deliver more effective math learning to their students. So this is not the way that you were taught to teach. And you had that experience of once you were out working in other classrooms and training teachers, (laughs) I had this experience a lot when I was working as a professional developer of just thinking, oh my gosh, if I went back in the classroom right now, what I would know. I would say that to my my coaches and my trainees all the time that I was actually sort of jealous of them, that they were going to be able to take these concepts and move them into their classrooms because I didn't have the opportunity to do that myself. It really sort of made me mad a little bit mm-hmm. that they yeah. had that opportunity and I didn't. And it was a lot of fun to see teachers get excited about that because, well, I'll share this. I'm a math guy. So I yeah. sort of approach everything. From a data standpoint, I have about three or four operating human emotions and the rest of me is data and statistics, (laughs) according to my wife. But one of the pieces of data that I collected from teachers was, okay, I, I would ask them, raise your hand if you were taught mathematics through a methodology, anything other than direct instruction of procedures, okay? And I asked that question to probably 3,000 teachers in probably 35 states at grade levels from kindergarten through 12th grade. And I never saw a hand go up. No, I was going to say, I, I can't imagine anybody raising their hand. Not in our generation, for sure. Yeah. So in terms of giving teachers the tools 
to be able to be more effective with, mm-hmm. with their students in the classroom in instructing math, there were a couple of hurdles to just get over, right? And one of them was the idea that direct instruction of procedures is an institutional failure. And unfortunately, the data is there on that. The data is in, right? And there's, depending on what studies you want to read and how sort of nerdy you want to get about it, you can dig up about 30 years of longitudinal data that will support that. And the, the second big hurdle is the comfort zone issue. And teachers have that as their comfort zone. It's the only instructional style any math teacher's ever yeah. been exposed to. One of the things that you indicated you really wanted to our listeners to walk away with was just, why do we need to embrace inquiry-based learning and specifically in math? Results. I mean, okay. I am a data guy. I don't want to waste my time. The most valuable resource any teacher has is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. And teachers see enough fluff in their day-to-day. Yeah. So to be strategically focused on results matters. And the data is in. The data is in. Mm -hmm. If you take longitudinally the results of doing procedural direct instruction based in instruction in math, Mm -hmm. take those results and just set it side by side with the results from an an institutional inquiry-based approach. That means Mm -hmm. people actually buy into it and use it the right way. The, The proof's in the pudding. The results are orders of magnitude better. And I have the data myself with districts I went into from a... I mean, I have stories from districts across the country that would just curl your hair. My hair actually is quite curly. I'm not sure you should change your math instruction based on this testimony alone, because in truth, my hair was curly prior to this interview, but keep listening anyway. I mean, districts that were flat and declining, where they really embraced, and they did spend money. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There's there's money that changes hands in some yeah, of these yeah, yeah. relationships because the training matters. But I watched their results just do this. We were on a Zoom call, of course, and Andrew was gesturing a steep upward incline with his arm here, just to give you the mental picture of what the results were doing. And say, well, look, it, it's really working well for you institutionally. You're killing it. So now let's look at the places where. It's not, why isn't it happening? They would all look at each other and kind of roll their eyes and go, yeah, those are the resistant teachers. Let's back up just a little bit here because I feel like, well, I know in education, we proliferate buzzwords. A lot of times we toss these things around without all being on the same page about what we're actually talking about. So when you say inquiry-based practices... Unpack that for our listeners. What is actually happening differently in a math classroom where they're using inquiry-based practices versus where they're using direct instruction? I don't think everybody has a solid picture on that. There's a couple of ways to look at it. And I like to start with the simplest way, right? And the simplest way to unpack it is that traditional direct instruction methodologies focus on literally direct instruction of procedures 
repetition of procedures and a procedural fluency of some kind. At the most basic level, an inquiry-based approach looks like conceptual understanding prior to procedural fluency. Procedures in mathematics still matter and procedural fluency matters. As a guy who taught calculus for a lot of years, the problem that the research and the data has identified is that unless kids have a conceptual underpinning to what those procedures do, why they work, how they work, the reason they're important, right? Mm -hmm. Then they are only procedures. And that application piece gets lost. And that's measurable. We see that, right? That kids have such a hard time with portability and applicability when they only have mastered procedures. So at the high level, it's conceptual understanding leading to procedural fluency. You have methodologies and procedures like a 5E kind of approach, which came from mostly from science instruction, but then people realized it works really well for math. Clarify 5E for our listeners. The five E's are engage, explore, explain, elaborate, and evaluate, which in the scientific method are really obvious, like how you would apply those in the Mm -hmm. scientific method. It's not always as clear in mathematics, but I can break it out this way. The engage phase of a 5e inquiry-based math lesson Mm -hmm. wouldn't be fundamentally different than what a good teacher would do in any kind of lesson. You're activating prior knowledge. Where the rubber meets the road is in the explore phase, okay? And that's where teachers have the biggest challenge in delivering inquiry-based learning is in this explore phase. And here's why. The teacher's role changes in those early phases Mm -hmm. of inquiry-based design. And that directed piece where teachers are so comfortable needs to have a huge adjustment, right? Mm -hmm. And I I used to try to leave behind pedagogy with my teachers in three-word chunks, right? I would say, okay, in your engage phase, activate prior knowledge. In your explore phase, facilitate productive struggle. That's the key. That's where the magic happens, right? It's the secret sauce. And there's a lot going on in those three words, right? Because A, facilitate. Teachers aren't taught to be facilitators, okay? It's not part of the model. We'll be right back. Think back to when you were first learning to ride a bike. Did you read books on how to ride? Did you watch lectures on how to pedal? Of course you didn't. You just jumped on the bike and you started pedaling. Maybe you fell off a few times. Maybe you needed training wheels. But you learned, and you learned very quickly. Now, what if there were a way to learn math this way? My name is AC Randano, and I'm the founder and CEO of Figure. Figure lets students play with equations and develop an intuitive understanding of how they work before they know all the rules of algebra. If this episode is getting you all fired up and inspired about inquiry-based math instruction, you are going to want to connect with Figure Math. You can find them at edcuration.com. Just type figure in the search bar and send any questions or requests via the connect to vendor button. Back to Andrew. 
facilitation in a math classroom happens through what's called math talk, questioning strategies to facilitate the productive struggle. In our culture, particularly in education, the idea of productive struggle isn't promoted. No. No. We started to say it. It's become one of those phrases that we toss around a lot, but I don't know that we really, we don't know how to facilitate it. And we're definitely not comfortable with it. And part of that's understandable, right? Especially at the elementary level, watching struggle isn't always something a teacher wants to do. No, we want to rescue our kiddos. And, you know, it's interesting, Andrew, because I think when I was coming up through teacher training, We were all about self-esteem. Like they were doing away with field days and competition. And, you know, kids aren't stupid. They they know that some of them are faster than others. We kept trying to level the playing field and eliminate competition. And so that is diametrically opposed to what we're now embracing in education, which is this idea of productive struggle. And teachers don't know where that line is. I struggled with the self-esteem movement, which, mm-hmm. which for me was really taking hold in the, in the 90s. It's hard to come out against growing people's self-esteem. You, you can't really say that you're against that as an idea. But the problem that I saw with that movement was at your first sign of struggle, you just sort of backed away, which isn't the way to do it. So I wonder, like, if I mention the name Carol Dweck, is that going to... Yeah, yeah. Growth mindset and Angela Duckworth and her Mm -hmm. whole, their ideas around grit. That's what we're embracing now. And luckily, a lot of schools, I think, are even doing training around that and bringing those ideas into the classroom and making school-wide initiatives around growth mindset, which is fabulous. I mean, and that's really where self-esteem is found. 100%. The way you grow self-esteem is by struggling and then becoming okay at something, right? Are you going to be great at it? Yeah. Maybe not. Are you going to be good at it as fast as that other person? Probably also not. But the esteem comes from the accomplishment. Side note, I'd be pretty astounded. I mean, not in a judgy way, but just genuinely surprised. To find an educator anywhere who is unfamiliar with Carol Dweck from Stanford and her work around growth versus fixed mindset, or Angela Duckworth and her TED Talk and writings on grit. But just in case you're that person and you're curious, I'm going to put some links in the program notes. This body of research represents a seismic shift for educators. Back to Andrew. The esteem comes from giving students a really hard challenge, giving them the skills to solve that challenge, not taking this challenge away, which is which was the approach of the 90s, right? Like remove all obstacles instead of teaching the kid to jump over the obstacle or go around the obstacle, like just remove it. To get back to the inquiry-based idea with math mm-hmm. or to find a way to solve it that is off the board some sort of method that because that's where modeling becomes so important. A lot of teachers look at modeling as not a good use of their time. You know, it takes a lot of time when we should just be learning the algorithm for division of fractions. Division by a fraction is just algorithmically 
intellectually destructive. And when you teach it to kids purely algorithmically, they, they don't get it to a number. They just don't get it. But when they model it, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a fifth, it usually happens in like fourth and fifth grade, in a fifth grade classroom using a good inquiry-based approach where the kids are doing a valid exploration, where the teacher is getting out of the way and facilitating through questioning strategies mm-hmm. and moving the kids into, you know, sort of deeper thinking through the, through the process, watching kids model division of fractions mm-hmm. and coming up with the answers, they get this really clear idea for how, you know, the idea of one half divided by one fifth actually works and what it produces. And you know what happens 99 times out of 100? It's actually way closer to 100 times out of 100. You know what happens as far as the algorithm goes? The kids find it. The kids find the algorithm themselves and they find it in a way that is mathematically incredibly healthy because... I will take on any mathematician you want to bring to me on this concept. Algorithms are hacks. That's all they are. They're not concepts. They're hacks, right? Every single classroom that I've been in across the country where they've modeled division of fractions, inevitably some kid just goes, oh my gosh, look at this. If I take the second fraction and just flip it over, I get that same answer from my model. And then they found the algorithm. Inquiry-based learning feels backwards. It feels like, no, you're posing the questions, you're, you're opening, you're facilitating experimentation, and they will find their way back to what you were going to use to scaffold them in the first place. It's very comforting to go back to what, what you're used to, which is, okay, here's the algorithm. This is what gives you the right answer. Don't worry about why it makes sense. Just do it. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible way to summarize it, but that's it's, really what no, but it's true. And it gets you the grade and it, and it allows the teacher to check off the standards. I taught it. I addressed the standard. The kids took the test. We're done. And in two weeks, they can't pass that same test. And people just go, what happened? And what happened is they're not carrying any conceptual understanding. Paint a picture for people who are still struggling with what this looks like. If a teacher or anyone who's listening has not been in a classroom where there was inquiry-based learning happening, what does it look like, sound like? What are kids doing? What, are, what is the teacher doing? How is this different? That's a great question. Yeah, I spent, I spent a lot of years answering that exact question. So what it looks like in a classroom is kind of like this. There's usually some sort of a quick conversation piece some sort of essential question, some sort of I can statement. I really gravitate toward the I can statement as opposed to the essential question. It turns out that really resonates because a different part of your brain lights up when you start using the pronoun I. Hmm. So when kids see that, it works really well. You know, I can take a fraction, divide it by another fraction, get an answer that works, right? An important thing there to throw in to teachers is to not spend a huge amount of time on that. Remember to not answer that question. You're not there to answer the question. You're there to present it. And you circle back to it later. Put it in your head. Then comes the explore phase, right? And that is facilitated through good good curriculum. You know that you have good resources 
for healthy inquiry-based math learning when they're what we call high-level problems. And that sounds judgmental, but it's not. It's a math thing. Low-level math problems have one method and one answer. High-level math problems have multiple methods and in some cases, multiple answers. So if it's a high-level problem that you can present to your students, then that instantiates your explore phase. The teacher then, like we talked about earlier, moves in their, into their facilitation role, okay? Hmm. And that's done through what's called math talk. And I'll give you a really quick example of how that yeah. works. If you just envision a table group of three students, okay? One thing that I know from experience and collecting data is that when students have individual whiteboards, okay, math learning improves. That is a non-debate. It's, it's just measurable from a data standpoint. Kids need their own little surface to work with. And a lot of it is about what we call share and show, right? The kids doing their own discussions and elaborations on concepts. So I, as a teacher, will do about this much instruction. Okay, has everyone read the problem? Should we read it together? Do you all understand what the problem's asking you? Do you all have the tools, manipulatives, your board, whatever, necessary to work on this problem? Okay, go. That's it. That's instruction during an explore phase. Then I start moving. I will use my predator skills to find the student who literally is just drawing the most. Whoever is modeling the most is going to have something to say. I will ask something like, Christy, can you tell me what you're doing? And that student will have an answer. It's just the best gamble ever. I mean, if they're getting into it, they're going to be able to talk about it. My next move is I just go to the person sitting next to that first person and say, Tom, can you tell me what Christy just said? And boom, the crickets ensue, right? Because what have we not taught kids? We have taught them to value the sound of our voices. (laughs) We haven't taught them to value the sound of each other's, right? So when we start teaching them that, then that becomes a valuable piece of the process. This is another one of those things that I've collected from thousands, plural, of math teachers across the country. I ask them this question. Imagine one hour of your math instruction, and it's audio recorded, okay? We listen back to it critically. You're being honest with me. No one's evaluating you. There's no judgment here. Who's talking? <laughs> I want, yeah, I want you to make me a ratio right now. What's the percent of your voice we hear talking about math? And what's the percent cumulative of student voices we hear talking about math? What do you think teachers answer? Teachers probably. When they're being honest. Okay. So if they're being very self-aware, my guess is that it's in the somewhere in the 90th percentile. If they're not being self-aware, they probably are going to tell you that it's about 50%. The most common teacher response is 70-30. My observational experience is closer to 80-20. So good on the teachers for being that self-aware, right? Now, in a math talk classroom, do you know what that ratio is? Hopefully it would be flipped where it would be like 30-70. It's, yeah, it's closer to 20-80. I was embedded with some districts for a few years, right? And got to turn them over to inquiry-based math instruction and work with them on math talk and work on mm. institutional change across the district with growth mindset. And they're 
numbers just stair step, like incredible results from a data perspective. It's actually a lot easier than most teachers think because when you think about 20 to 80, that's two to eight, which is one to four, which is five to 20. Mm -hmm. Five to 20 is very digestible. And it comes down to this. Do you think you can deliver a five word question strategically at any given moment? And deliver that in a way that has a likelihood of getting about 15 or 20 words back from a student. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is yes, you can. Mm -hmm. It's a skill that you have to develop. A great article about increasing student voice in your classroom is Never Say Anything a Kid Can Say by Stephen C. Reinhardt, R-E-I-N-H-A-R-T. He's also a math teacher. The article is readily available on the internet, and even though it's 20 years old, the strategies are as fresh and useful as the day they were born. It's a quick read and immediately applicable. I've been in kindergarten classrooms where I don't remember what the teacher's voice sounds like and the conversations I heard coming from, what are you, six? I heard amazing conversations about mathematical concepts come out of little tiny mouths Mm. when they were just given the chance to do it, when they were given the air. The change is hard, but once these practices are in place, do you hear teachers saying that their job is easier, more fun, their students are more engaged? Like once they've made the shift, are they set free? Almost all of those things. I don't recall anyone saying, oh, my life is easier per se. I never heard anyone say it was harder. I heard them say it was much more fun, much more rewarding. There's the student achievement numbers were off the grid and they had just a sort of more enlightened mindset personally. Never had one of them come back to me and say, you know what? This didn't work. This inquiry-based math talk thing, it just didn't work. Never had that happen. Do you feel like their expectations of their students shift? There's a couple of expectations that I think you just need to reset when moving into inquiry-based math. And the first one is that a high-level math problem, that is something you're using in, in like an explore phase to start a lesson and teach conceptual understanding, there won't be one answer. It's not a binary right or wrong situation. You're going to have students who model. You're going to have students who do something algorithmically. Amongst the students who model, you will have students who choose completely different modeling techniques. And all of those things are valid, which then move you into your next phase. You don't get to mentally check it off until your students can explain what they're doing. And where that gets super cool in a math environment is when you're able to integrate concepts like debate. Oh, I see what you did there. I don't agree with that. And I would do that differently because I did this. And what happens as a result of that, inevitably, People gravitate toward whatever is most efficient. You will get to an algorithm. It's just a question of time. Stop trying to force the algorithm there. 
Yeah. It happens. Get to it. Let them take the journey. Mm -hmm. And when they don't let it happen, they wind up paying for it in remediation and time later to reteach all the stuff that didn't stick Mm -hmm. because there's no conceptual underpinning to it. So you've been in tons of classrooms and tons of schools. Give us a success story, how this is bringing learning to life. I'm going to go back to that kindergarten classroom that I was telling you about where where the teacher really embraced inquiry-based instruction in math along with math talk. It was mind-blowing. So in kindergarten, kids talk about shapes. And it was three-dimensional shapes that they happened to be talking about. And this was a little bit later on in the school year. She had been practiced, right? And she gave the kids, I believe, a cylinder. And I'm going to say rectangular prism. It might have been a cube, but at least it was a rectangular prism. She had a physical version of each one. Gave them to the kids. Literally just asked this question. Can you tell me what's different and the same? And I was like, okay. This could go nowhere. Let's watch what happens. First kid out of the chute says, well, the cylinder can roll and the cube, you can't roll it. And I was like, that is the cutest. That is such a kindergarten answer. That's great. And then the next kid says, and I'm not making this up, right? I have the recording (laughs) and the vocabulary was theirs, not mine. A kid then says, the cylinder has three faces and then picks up the cube, actually counted, which was cute. And the cube has six. And I was like, okay, this, now I'm paying attention, right? I heard the word faces. That's, that's awful good for kindergarten, you know, sides usually here, but they're using academic language. Why are they using academic language? Because they're being encouraged to use language at all. And then, and this is where I just, I mean, it was a, if anyone had a mic, they should have dropped it and just stopped everything. Because the next kid looks at the cylinder and goes, three faces, look, looks at the cylinder. And I taught enough middle school math to tell you, this was not an easy concept for middle school kids. Kid looks at the cylinder and says, three faces. Oh, yeah. Two of the faces are circles. And you could see the little wheels spinning because there has to be a third. And then she says, the third face is a rectangle, which is true, right? Because you think about cutting it open and unwrapping it, right? Which I usually had to do physically with kids to just show them that that's how. And at that point, I was just like, yeah, I mean, you're not going to get a better selling point than that. So there's a teacher listening to this podcast and they're thinking, This is new to me, and I want to start shifting my practice. What can that teacher or educator do? What small shift, what step can they take? I don't think this is a satisfying answer, but I'm not in the business of giving satisfying answers. But I don't necessarily think it's a small step. Yeah, Um, it's a long journey, but how do we start it? I honestly, I think you start it with a professional learning culture. It's something that could be done through, you know, professional study teams within a school. The key is really being able to open your own mind and be vulnerable to making changes, right? And especially in math and especially in elementary school, 
I would go immediately to my administrators and say, what's our professional learning budget? What can we do? Because here's the data. The data says that us teaching math to our kids in a more inquiry-based method, using questioning strategies, these tools, we're going to perform better. And by the way, administrator, that's going to make you look good. Take control of your professional learning. Fabulous. Hey, thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of this. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast was sponsored by Figure Math. Figure Math will allow you to initiate, facilitate, and raise the level of math talk in your classroom. Tom, an eighth grader from the Macintosh School, said, I like Figure because you can do math and there's nobody telling you that it's too hard. It's an amazing and easy to integrate tool for inquiry-based instruction. And it is available at edcuration.com. That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N.com. You can search for figure by name or filter your search by content area and grade level to find all kinds of new, innovative, and high quality instructional resources for every subject area. And if you found this episode helpful, we encourage you to subscribe and share us with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to share a favorite resource, tool, or topic with our Ed Curation podcast audience, feel free to contact us through our website. Thanks again for joining us today at Ed Curation.